If you have your Bibles or your phone, turn to Matthew chapter 2 this morning. Matthew chapter 2. If you were with us last week as we kicked off this series we've entitled Real Christmas, we started with the theme of hope. We looked at the account of Joseph in Matthew chapter 1 of what it looks like to have real hope this Christmas. Today, we're going to look at the theme of real joy, and we're going to look at the account of the wise men in Matthew chapter 2, and and there's a question that's going to drive our discussion today, a question that each and every person right now in this room joining us online needs to answer for themselves. Is Jesus Christ truly king of your life? Without a doubt. Is Jesus Christ truly king of your life? Let's read Matthew chapter 2. We're going to read the entire passage together before we go back through in detail, looking at verses 1 through 12. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them of where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea. So it is written by the prophet, O you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. And from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Growing up, uh, I grew up in a home where on Christmas, the nativity set was a central part of our decorations. Uh, How many of you have a nativity set set up right now as we speak at home? Ours was always under the tree, uh, the first thing we, we set out on the Christmas season. And then on Christmas Eve service, after service, we went to church in Houston, PA. We would swing through Cannonsburg because there was a church there that had a live nativity scene on Christmas Eve. Anyone ever actually been part of a live nativity scene? Anyone? Wow, few people. I always thought those poor, freezing souls, right? It's freezing out there. So, so this nativity set right here is right from our home. Kristen and I, this is our nativity set. She allowed me to bring it in as long as I don't drop anything. And this is the one that sits in the middle of our living room. So I grew up loving the nativity set. But then as I got older, I realized this is not so biblically accurate. 
There's a few assumptions we make from Matthew chapter 2, which is the only account of the wise men in this nativity set. The first one is this. All three of these guys, the, the three wise men that we have here, they are all wearing crowns. There's this assumption that they were kings themselves. But the uh, actual word in scripture uh, for the, the wise men uh, translates better, magi, which means that they were more men of astrology or, or sacred writings. I was so sad to learn that my brothers and I love singing We Three Kings, <laughs> especially the part that we would be real loud in the back of the station wagon. Oh, star. I'll stop. I'll stop. <laughs> we love that song. Written in 1863, not that accurate. Because they probably weren't kings and there's no evidence that there were just three wise men. We assume that from verse 11 because of the three gifts given. But, but most likely many believe there would have been a whole caravan of these wise men and their animals and other individuals who would travel with them. So they probably weren't just three as well. Not only that but they most likely came from the east, or Bible might say the far east, which, which could have been, most believe, Babylon, Persia area. It would have been 800 and 900 miles for them to travel. So it was probably months or a year before they got to see Jesus. That's why in the Greek, in verse 11, the word for Jesus is not the word infant, but for child. He was most likely a little older. So sadly, if we're gonna be accurate, these guys need to go to the Far East. <laughs> right over here. I told Kristen this week, you know, we probably should take them from the living room and put them way up in our bedroom. Have the kids move them like one inch every day. And after a few months, they would finally get to the living room. But then I thought that would really mess up their theology if they thought the wise men showed up after Jesus died and rose again in Easter. So we'll keep them for now in our homes by the nativity set. I give that background because we don't know that much about these men. We don't know exactly who they were. We don't know exactly where they came from. We don't know exactly how long this journey to Jesus took. There's only one part of these wise men that we know crystal clear, and that's the motive behind their journey. Twice, we read in Matthew, they came with the purpose of worshiping Jesus. We don't know if they were worshiping Jesus truly as the Son of God, the Messiah, the promised one, or they were just worshiping him to pay homage to royalty, the newborn king. Nevertheless, Scripture says they came with the ambition and motive to worship him. So with that background, we're going to get back into our text and picked up in verse 2 where the, the wise men ask this question of the Jewish leaders. Verse 2 says, they asked, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. They speak of this star. Many believe that they would have had some Old Testament scholarship. They would, have, they would have known as prophesied in Numbers 24 that there would be this star who would come out of Jacob. Some believe that this was a, a supernatural revelation, that this star guided their way. 
Regardless, they most likely went to Jerusalem first because it would just make sense that the Messiah would go and be born in Jerusalem if he was going to be the king of the Jews. They also possibly went to Jerusalem just for more direction. Of course the Jewish leaders would be excited. Let's go hear from them where the Messiah was born. And going back to our focus question of the day, is Jesus truly king of your life? We see three responses in this passage. The first one comes from Herod. Look at verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. This is the Herod the Great the Roman emperor of this time, the Roman king of Judea. He is known in history as being a great ruler, a great builder. The the projects, some of them still stand today if you go to the Holy Land. A great administrator of government. But he's also known in history as a great cold-blooded dictator. If you were opposed to Herod, he'd just take you out. Historians say he, he, he took out the remnants of the dynasty before him. Over his time, he would wipe out half of this Sanhedrin. He even killed his own wife, mother-in-law, and some of his children who opposed his reign. Maybe, I don't know about you, but like our nativity said, if you would come check out these guys, they are chipped, paints off of them. And just about a week ago, Kristen super glowed this guy's head back on after Ezra knocked it off probably the third or fourth time this happened, and I said, you should have left his head off. It's a perfect picture of living under Herod, but it is back on. This guy was ruthless. To no surprise, therefore, Scripture says he was troubled when the wise men came to seek, this is important, the one born king of the Jews. Herod knew he was not the rightful heir to that throne. He was not the rightful heir to the Jews. He wasn't even even born of Jacob. He wasn't even born from Israel's line. He was an Edomite, born from the line of Esau. And hearing that the rightful heir was now born, man, he had to protect his turf. The fact that it says that all of Jerusalem was troubled with Herod, most believe that's because people feared what this paranoid dictator might do on hearing that the rightful king was now born. The first response we get to the question, is Jesus truly king of your life, is this, opposition. Jesus, you're a threat to my kingdom. After getting the information he needed from the chief priests and scribes, Herod secretly tells the wise men, hey, come here, come here. Go find that king, report back to me, because I just want to go worship him too. And we know that's a lie, because when God leads them another way, verse 16 tells us his real motive. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all in that region who were two years old or under. Opposition to Jesus. Let me ask you, when we look at our culture today, many people living today, how much has really changed since Herod? 
Christians around the globe every day are persecuted and killed for their faith in Jesus Christ. But, but one, one does not have to kill Christians to be in opposition to Jesus. You can be aggressively opposed to him or just passively opposed to him by saying, I'm on the throne of my life, not you, Jesus. I'm in control, not you, Jesus. In 2017, seeing the, the growing trends of our nation, the Barna Group with the Pew Research Center did the first of a few studies on what it looks like now in every city across our nation to live in what they call the post-Christian era. Here's how the study is reported back in 2017. It says, it may come as no surprise that the influence of Christianity in the United States is waning. Rates of church attendance, religious affiliation, belief in God, prayer and Bible reading have all been dropping for decades. By consequence, the role of religion in public life has been slowly diminishing. And the church no longer functions with the cultural authority it held in times past. These are unique days for the church in America as it learns what it means to flourish in what they now call the post-Christian era. They continued to, to monitor cities by these 16 metrics that they say show that whether a city is post-Christian or not. And as of 2019, anybody want to guess where Pittsburgh ranked? Well, they made the top 50. We are the 36th most post-Christian city in our country. Question is, why are so many people still today opposed to Jesus? Opposed to Christianity. Well, not much has changed since the first century. When, when Paul wrote these words in Romans chapter 1, as he was beginning his discourse on the unrighteousness of man apart from Christ, when Paul said in verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness, here's the key, suppress the truth. Suppress the truth. That reminds us of why Oxford Dictionary said in 2016 the new word of the year was post-truth because it defines who we are as a nation. Our nation is now driven, many say, by these three areas. Individualism. Truth is dictated by you. It's all about the individual. Truth is a matter of personal preference, could that be any more clear of putting yourself on the throne? It's driven by religious pluralism. All paths lead to God and are equally true. Moral relativism. Moral truth, our behavior is subjective. It can change over time. There is no such thing as moral absolutes. In our post-truth, suppress the truth culture, Jesus Christ is still a real threat to today's way of thinking and way of living. Just as Jesus was a real threat to the kingdom of Herod, he is a threat to anyone's kingdom who will not take themselves off the throne and put Jesus Christ in their place. Jesus is a real threat to our money and stuff. I mean, seriously, how dare Jesus 
say that everything I've earned is for his glory. How dare him say that everything is to be used for his kingdom. Man, how dare him say that? I worked hard for what I got. Jesus, you're a threat to my view of morality, my view of sexuality, my view of marriage. Jesus, how dare you say in Matthew 19, have you not read that he who created, taking it back to the creation account, from the beginning, God made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Man, how dare Jesus? How dare he say that marriage is between one man and one woman for life? How dare he? How dare he say, let man not separate? What if I'm not happy in my marriage, Jesus? Does that matter to you? How dare you? Back off. These are my natural impulses. Desires. I, I have a loving, open view of sexuality. How dare you, Jesus? Jesus, you're a threat to my view of religion and love. Love is accepting all paths to God. Accepting everyone's view as equally valued. How dare you, Jesus, be so explicit, so clear when you said, I'm the way, not one of many. I'm the absolute objective truth. I'm the life. There is no eternal life apart from me. How dare he? No one comes to the Father except through me. I agree. I agree that Jesus is a real threat. This is a kingdom battle between you and him Either he's on the throne or you are. This means your dethronement. This means your submission. This means Jesus now rules your life. This means a level of heartfelt love towards Christ that you could say these words like Paul, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives within me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I'm still going to have this fleshly desire to go my own way, but I live by faith in the Son of God. Why? Because he loved us and gave himself up for us. If you're here today and have never trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you might not be killing Christians you might not be blasting Jesus on social media. But right now you are passively living in opposition to him. Because you're on the throne and he's not. That's why he came. Because as long as you're on the throne, you can't do anything to save yourself. The Bible says we are dead in our sin apart from Christ. That's why he came. Died on the cross for your sin. If you want to begin the experience of real joy, it starts by taking yourself off the throne, submitting yourself to Jesus, saying, I trust in you alone as my Lord and Savior. The first response, Herod, no surprise, opposition. Second response seems to be from those whom you would think 
lived in the walls of the church. Look at verses four through six. He brings these chief priests and scribes in. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Man, if you can picture this, how excited the chief priests and scribes were. The king calls them in because he has a question he needs you for. They're just, they're drooling, right? They're drooling, all excited, coming in. And you can, you can almost picture it, right? It, the prophecy here is from Micah 5.2. They don't even need to open the scripture. They're so smart. They don't even need to open up any scroll, any scripture. They knew. They knew exactly what the answer would be. They're waiting. They're weeding. It's like Bible trivia 101 Jeopardy with them, right? They're all looking, waiting, waiting. Here it goes. Where's the Christ to be born? What is Bethlehem? They're all pumped up. Yes, got it. Man. I got it first. What a sad state of affairs. These guys throughout Scripture were considered their day the professional Bible scholars. The chief priests were the highest ranking members of the priesthood. The scribes were, were called the teachers of the law. I mean, they, they meticulously would copy the scriptures. They knew it. They knew every verse pretty much. They knew everything about the Messiah. But when it came to the question, is Jesus truly king of your life? Their response throughout Jesus' time was straight indifference. Man, I got the Christ in my head, but Jesus is not on the throne. Unlike the foreigners who travel far and wide to worship Jesus, we see nothing here in the text that these guys did anything but answer a question. We don't see anything about them going to see the Messiah. And, and, and not just them. It seems like the whole city of Jerusalem was indifferent. All the Jews found out. We find that out in verse 2 and 3. But all we see, the only thing we hear is that the wise men went. No indication that anyone else was willing to go just six miles down the road to actually see if the Messiah was there. Makes sense why John says in John 1.11, he, Jesus, came to his own, supposedly his own people, and they did not receive him. Let me ask you, any chance, any chance, we still have indifferent people in the church today when it comes to worshiping Jesus. Across all our campuses, they sit in the pews every single week, filling their heads with the knowledge of God. The knowledge, man, they can tell you where he was born. They can tell you about his life. They can even tell you what he came to do. But there is absolute no indication that they've actually put Jesus on the throne of their life. That they have actually trusted in him as their Lord and Savior. Salvation is not about what you know about Jesus. It's whether you've trusted in the one you know, given him your life. It's not about works, but it is about taking that head knowledge to your heart and saying, I need you, Jesus, for the salvation of my soul. And what about believers? Any chance, any chance, believers in our church, some still live in a manner that is kind of indifferent when it comes to worshiping Jesus on a daily basis. 
they seem just totally uninterested in getting involved in daily worshiping the one they say is their king. They belong to the king. They're eternally secure, but there's nothing in their life that says he's sitting on the throne of their everyday life. Worship is not just this, Sunday mornings. We say it's stewardship of our lives where, where believers say, yes, everything about me. We say this, our time, our talents, our treasures. It is all for you, Jesus. And a different believer, they may be in three Bible studies a week. They love to debate theology. Man, you ask them, to, they'll meet you anywhere to debate theology. But man, they haven't served in a ministry for years. They only give financially if it fits the monthly budget and does not affect the hobbies and the things they want to do. They are covered by the grace of God, the blood of Jesus Christ. But man, right now, right now this minute, they're still holding grudges to another brother and sister in this room, to a family member they've held on for years. Indifferent to Jesus. I know a lot about him. I know a lot about him. I may even have trusted in him. But man, it's hard for anyone to look at my life and say, yep, he's truly sitting on the throne of their life. There's no joy, absolutely no joy, when it comes to a relationship with God, when it comes to your eternity, when you're opposed to Jesus. And you're really robbing yourself of real joy if you're indifferent to Jesus. So the question is, how can the church change the heart of our nation? Man, the Bible Chapel has four thousand people approximately every weekend gathering across all our community. How can we as the church change our city? I'm not thrilled that we are the 36th most post-Christian city in our nation. How can we be the number one revitalized city in our nation? Well, first it starts with the proper position of joy in Christ. And that's our third response. Look again at verses 10 and 11. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child and Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they'd offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Parents, we all know it's probably going to happen on Easter morning if you have young ones. You're going to wake up a lot earlier than you had hoped. You probably would tell them, guys, presents will be there. Just sleep. And it, I don't know why we even say that. They will get up, waking you up to get downstairs. So while you're trying to get the coffee on, you'll just go down. It's like, let's do it. Let's go, guys. And you've got to get the phone out, right? What are you going to do if you don't have a good Facebook or Instagram photo of Johnny finally opening up that gift that he's been asking for for months? You have to capture the joy of your child when he gets that one thing, one thing he's been longing for. I don't know about you. I've seen my children happy many times. I've seen a lot of people show joy in your life. But the phrase rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, I don't hear that reference often about people. That is a ridiculous amount of joy. Because that can only be connected to joy found in Christ. 
The third response we see in this text of is Jesus truly king of your life is our theme, real joy. That's the experience of those who are positioned in Christ, expressed through worship of Jesus. In Scripture, it's interesting, the the Greek word for joy, kara, comes from the same Greek origin, shared origin, for the Greek word of grace, charis. It's as if Scripture is telling us that, that real joy only comes by the grace of God in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Real joy comes from a position, not an emotion. It comes from a position of a relationship intimately with Jesus Christ. That way, it's not dictated from outside circumstances or shifting emotions. Real joy begins with a positional relationship with Jesus Christ. And it says when these men finally reached Jesus, they fell down and worshiped him. Don't, don't skip over that. Literally, the text reads, they got on their knees, prostrate themselves before the Lord. And it says their, their foreheads were on the ground. The only proper position of worship for Jesus Christ. We don't know, again, worshiping him as a great king, or is that the proper stance of worship for the savior of the world? What does real joy look like in the life of a believer? Well, first, we can never forget that real joy for us began when we trusted in Jesus Christ alone as our Lord and Savior, as we entered into the position spiritually of being in Christ. I love what Peter says, 1 Peter 1.8, though you have not seen him, we don't see Jesus right now, but we love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And when that happens, this is what should be visible in your life. You believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. The glory that can only come from God himself. And and real joy is understood as a gift from God. And and we know that it's only sustained in us because of God, the Holy Spirit, who indwells in the life of every believer. Paul says in Romans 15, 13, I love this, may the God of hope, God does this, fill you with all the joy and peace in believing. So that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. You say, I have real joy in Christ. It's going to be expressed in worship of him. I love Jesus so much. I have such joy for Christ. I can't help but soak myself in the truth of his word. I can't get enough of God's word. Man, this stuff's in me daily because I know this is my sustainability of that real joy. Man, when it comes to to my time and my talents, my treasures, man, financially, everything belongs to God. Giving unto God is a joyful expression to my relationship because of Jesus Christ. I can't believe, I can't believe that Scripture says when I trusted in Jesus, he gifted me, the Holy Spirit gave me unique gifts to be used by him for his church and his glory. Just like every single person has unique fingerprint, God has uniquely created you in a way that you are wired and gifted that only you can do what he desires for you to do in his church. That's why I can't help it. I have to serve my king. I can't help it. If I'm not serving and using my gifts, I'm not happy. Joy comes from using my gifts for God. Man, I can't wait for the day 
when we don't have to put out volunteer requests every week. Social media, website, program. We have so many joyful believers who say, I'm just not right unless I'm using my gifts for God. It's the joy I have. I can't help but express it. And we're like, what are we going to do with all these servants of Christ? We're filled up. Children's filled up. Youth filled up. We've got to think of other ways to make sure every person is using their gifts. And a believer with real joy in Christ knows that we can delight even in those mundane, everyday tasks. Whether it's at work and for some it might be a job. You're like, I know this is not what I'm called to do the rest of my life, but man, I'm going to do it under Christ. Our marriages, our parenting, our friendships, the believer, because they have real joy in Christ. Colossians 3.17 is not just some cool social, social media slogan. It defines who you are. Whatever you do, whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And I believe this one, man, this is what sets us apart. This is what our city says there's something different about these people. That's that real joy in Christ for the believer is when we worship him through times of pain, uncertainty, and trial. James 1, 2, and 3, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Because my joy is rooted in a positional relationship with Jesus Christ, I can even find joy through the darkest of times. We said last week that we're going to be showing you real testimonies as we're talking about a real Christmas. And this week, I want you to check out this clip in a second from Amy Altieri. Amy and Dan have been attenders uh, here for a long time. And Amy's going to share how recently, through an illness, how God still helped her experience real joy. Check this out. My name is Amy Altieri, and this is my story of real joy. So last May, I went to my doctor's and I had swelling in my gum. Didn't think anything of it, but she ordered me a test. I went and had the test done. The tech was new and said, I don't see anything, but I'm gonna scan everything. Um, turns out that they found, by an incidental finding, a papillary um, carcinoma of my thyroid, so thyroid cancer at age 34. So last October, I went through treatment. I started with surgery. And then in February of this year, I ended up having radiation. So that Monday after I found out was the week where everything started. Test, appointments. It's probably one of the busiest weeks. And we also have a little guy. So we had to work around what to do with him and, and still be the parents in this, this journey for him as well. And I just remember choosing to make the decision that no matter what happened, I still wanted to represent Him, the Lord, in everything I was doing. So it was funny because when I went to appointments, the doctors would ask why I was happy or why I was still smiling. And don't get me wrong, there were lots of moments of tears and stress and anxiety, but in all of it, I knew no matter what, He was going to get me through it and that He was holding me in the palm of His hands. And 
when I made that decision and I started to let myself see what he was doing in the midst of the storm, he was so present. I encourage you this week, go on the, the website, our social media pages, you'll see the full interview um, with Amy. We praise God that uh, I heard this week from Amy that uh, in October she was cleared of cancer in her neck area. Um, and I ask that you continue to keep her and Dan and their family in prayers because she goes back in February uh, for the full body scan to make sure that cancer did not spread anywhere else. She's honest uh, in that testimony. She says there are times absolutely where, where she was concerned. And she would go to a treatment, and to be honest, she wasn't too happy. But I love that she says she decided that she was going to choose joy, even in the midst of having cancer. So much so, the doctors and nurses are saying, why are you so happy? Do you know you have cancer? Why are you smiling all the time? Man, what a witness. What a witness to have real joy in Jesus Christ. What's interesting when we see uh, uh, in Matthew's gospel, you know, when I think about Amy's testimony, I think of the, the final point about a, a believer having real joy in Christ is you can't help but share that joy with those who don't know him. That's what she was doing. It was just coming out of her, the people, and the, even the hospital were noticing it. And what's interesting, Matthew wrote to a Jewish audience. He was writing to Jews. Remember, we said last week that, that Matthew was explaining where Jesus came from. Why? He was like, guys, this is your Messiah. This, he, here he is. Here's the evidence. This is Jesus. And yet, uninterested. Therefore, the, the first group of people who worship Jesus, the king of the Jews at that time, Herod, no. How about the guys with all the head knowledge, the priests, the scribes? No. What about all the Jews of Jerusalem? Did they rush down there? We don't see that. No, no. It was these Gentile, non-Jewish wise men who traveled far and wide to worship Jesus. Interestingly, Matthew begins with the nations, the Gentiles, worshiping Jesus. And then he ends his book in Matthew 28 with Jesus telling believers, his church, go into all world and reach the nations. Take my joy that I've given you to the nations, those who don't know him. So let me ask you this. I want to switch my question I started with in the beginning. Is Jesus truly king of your life? Let's, let's just ask this. Why isn't Jesus Christ king of your life? Are you living in opposition to him? Again, it doesn't mean you're, you're bashing Christianity or religion. If you've never given your life to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are living in opposition to him. Again, you're on the throne. Today, will you experience the love of Christ, the hope of Christ, the joy of Christ, of entering an eternal relationship with the living God by saying, God, I give my life to Jesus. I know there's nothing I can do to earn your favor. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, died on the cross for my sins. I believe in him as the only way to salvation. Church, believers, anybody here living indifferent to Jesus? Is there an area of your life? Is there an area of your life right now where you know, yep, I kind of brought that back and put me on the throne again? Is there an area in your life today where you say it's time to put Jesus back on the throne? And how can we, as one body, change the heart of our city? 
will we be a church who lives out what it means to experience real joy in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. We're closing with the song, and at the end of this song, it simply says this, the king is coming. The king is coming. Jesus, the king, has come, and he will return one day. When you go to be with the Lord one day, or whether the king returns while we're still here, will you be ready for the king? Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let her receive her King. Let every heart prepare Him room. And heaven and nature sing. Heaven and nature sing and heaven and nature sing joy to the world the Savior reigns let men their song
So when I got home last night, uh, my wife asked me, how did the, the message go? And I said, well, for a sermon on joy, it felt a little tough and harsh. But, uh, man, we, we love you enough. We're so glad you're here. And we want to tell you the truth of what it looks like and what it means to put Jesus Christ on the throne of your life. And to really experience, not a go through the motions, really experience real joy in relationship with him. If you're able, you please stand uh, as I'm going to close our service in a time of prayer. And as always, if you could use prayer in any form or fashion, we will have a team up front who would love to pray with you after we're done. Father, we, we just sang, the king is coming. Open up your eyes to see him. Open up your ears to hear him. And we read the, the passage we did this morning. We think of all those where Jesus, he was right there, right there. And they just seemed to miss him. But then you had this group who recognized him. You revealed who he was and they responded in worship. God, I pray that we would be a church known. The Bible Chapel is that church. Without a doubt, man, where those people Man, Jesus reigns over their lives. God, we pray if no, someone here has never trusted in Jesus, that today's the day they begin real joy in their life spiritually by putting Jesus Christ on the throne. And God, I pray for uh, our brothers and sisters in this room, those who have trusted in Christ, that there's an area that you're convicting them on. God, they would take the steps. They would reach out to someone and say, man, I, got, I need to get Jesus back on the throne of whatever that is. And that we may be a church who goes out this week at work, at home, in our neighborhoods, wherever you send us. And we express in word and deed what it looks like to have real joy in your son. Be with us now as we go. In Christ's name, amen.